Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Content Management Bible Podcast. Uh, this is episode four of the podcast. We're going to be tackling chapter two of the book. Uh, the title of this chapter is Content Has Format. It is the shortest chapter in the book. It is a mere uh, seven pages. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. Um, first of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. I've been amazed at the um, feedback I've gotten and the number of people who have downloaded the podcast. I told myself that I just wanted five people. Um, if I got five people to listen to the podcast, then it was worth doing. Um, based on the numbers that I'm seeing, I have about 50 people listening to the podcast. So um, thank you all for listening. It's wonderful. Um, the other housekeeping note is that Bob Boyko himself has listened to the podcast. And he wrote me about uh, chapter one. And um, if you remember chapter one, which was last episode, I really struggled with that about his definition between content and information. And um, Bob told me that he actually changed his definition of um, content and information. And this is what he wrote. Um, information is encoded communication. Say it into the night sky and it is lost. Say it into a microphone and it is information for information systems to amass and put to use. So uh, that's another uh, definition of information. Um, this apparently comes from um, a series of books that Bob wrote after the Content Management Bible um, called Information Systems from the Information Out. So um, uh, Bob has listened to the podcast, and um, based on the tone of the email he sent me, he appears to enjoy it. So we will uh, go through Chapter 2 today. Again, this is called Content Has Format. Um, the headings of this, um, again, I think there's only four. There's a couple of sidebars in here that I'll talk about. But uh, storage formats, storing information, rendering format, presenting information, dealing with formatting, and categorizing format, and then a summary. So that's it. Uh, short chapter. Let's get started. So the first thing that Bob does is he clarifies the two different types of formatting that he's talking about in this chapter. The first type of format he's talking about are storage formats. And he actually covers this fairly briefly. Um, I think he really just mentions it because he wants to make sure that we understand that this is a type of formatting as well. Um, he's going to talk more about the other type of formatting, what he calls rendering formats later on. But he does briefly talk about storage formats. The header for the section is called Storage Formats, colon, Storing Information. And what he does is he talks, he, he states the obvious. For a computer to use information, it must convert the information to binary code. When you digitize a printed picture, for example, the scanner must convert the picture from tiny blobs of color on paper to a structured set of ones and zeros. I love that he's talking about this, and, and I do, because I, I teach an advanced course in CMS, and one of the things I talk about is how we encode information. And what I do with my students, I, I think I may have mentioned this last episode, um, what I do with my students is I take them from a bit, a one or a zero, all the way through a formatted copy of War and Peace, and I explained to them that bits are grouped into bytes and then bolts, bytes are grouped into multi-byte sequences and then they're applied to an encoding and then they get glyphs and fonts. And this is how we get from ones and zeros to war and peace. And I think that's amazing, honestly. I think that is an incredible achievement of humankind that we can um, take what Claude Shannon defined as the smallest unit of information that can possibly be transmitted, which is a true or a false. And we can go from that, from a simple true or false, all the way to war and peace, um, I think is, is remarkable. Um, he continues further down, in text, the characters you type are generally encoded using American Standard Code for Information Exchange, or ASCII. 
or its more modern, modern equivalent, Unicode. Format is most fundamentally defined as the way information is encoded so that computer applications can use it. In this book, I refer to these binary formats, along with non-binary formats such as XML, generically and collectively as storage formats. And then he talks a bit about exchanging storage formats and how, I'll read this, this is still a problem today, this is like hilarious that he was talking about this 20 years ago. Microsoft Word files, for example, have been notoriously hard to convert to web files. Although they're both text formats, uh, Word files are richer, more complex, and simply different. Many of the conventions that exist in a Word file simply don't exist in an HTML file. This means you get inconsistent, poor results if you try to convert from one format to the other without a lot of intelligent human oversight. Still a problem we encounter today, as I'm sure that a lot of you can relate. And so that concludes that section. And that's really all he's going to talk about, about storage formats. Uh, the rest of the chapter is really about what he calls rendering formats. All right, this next section is entitled Rendering Format, colon, Presenting Information. And this is more of a discussion about what people in content management would really think about when they, when they talk about formatting. Uh, in addition to being the way that you encode a file, format refers to the qualities that you use to visually render content. If I use the word format without qualifiers in this book, um, he has the word format there italicized, so I guess he means when he uses the word format without italics or other formatting. I mean this sort of rendering format, typographic qualities such as bold, italic, and underline, as well as layout qualities such as tables, right alignment, and margins are all part of this definition of format. Rendering format is important. In order to make your content comprehensible to a reader, you must manage the format across all the content that you intend to handle in these two ways. And then he has a two-point bulleted list that honestly, these two bullets like are almost content management at its core. The first bullet, the bolded heading there, is you must make format consistent across content categories as well as across all content in a single publication. To ensure readability, for example, you want to make sure that all your news releases feature the title centered and bold-faced at the top of the page. And also format a cross-reference link the same way across all content in your publications to ensure that the user recognizes it as a link. And then the second bullet is really how we make the first bullet happen. The second bullet reads, you must separate format from content. Uh, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, just a side note there, separate format from content. It's usually, that phrase usually goes separate content from presentation. That's probably the most common way of expressing that. But he says here, separate format from content so that you can reuse the content in a variety of outputs. Although making your title centered and boldface may be appropriate in your web design, for example, you may prefer to make them left justified and italicized in print. In this case, the title itself doesn't have any set format associated with it. Rather, the publishing system enables the title to adopt the title format that the specific publication uses. Like these two points really are the heart of content management and the reason why we engage in a lot of content management projects. I would have put the first bullet first. You separate um, content from presentation in order to make format consistent. I would have switched those two bullets. I get what he's saying there, but I would have switched them. Um, he continues, for the content manager, rendering format is best thought of as separate from content. For the consumer of content, the two are inseparable. Um, that's, that's a very interesting point. Um, when you kind of peer behind the curtain of content management, you get into all sorts of things about how this is separate from this and how these things come together. But to an end user, they all kind of melt together. The end user never really gets to break that fourth wall or lift the curtain on how you present your content. 
Uh, Bob continues, the typography and layout of the page tell you much of what you need to know about the page. Format is a kind of metadata. That is a fascinating concept that I don't know that I've really considered too much. Format really is a type of metadata. It's information about the content. Uh, he continues, it's information above and around the language on the page that tells your brain what to do with the language on the page. It tells the reader such things as this part is important. Read this section first or this text is a link. It guides your eye and your emotions around the language, leading you, if it is done well, to a much faster and fuller understanding of the information on that page. I love that. I love that section, the idea of design and presentation as content metadata. That's a very interesting way to look at it. I think at some level I sort of knew that, but I've never seen it articulated. At the end of that last section, Bob has a really great sidebar here, and it's a sidebar. It's set off, it's shaded, and it has a title to it. And the title of the sidebar is called The Language of Formatting. I'm actually going to read this whole thing. It's very, very good. Um, Bob writes, print editors and publishers have long understood the power of formatting and have developed strong formatting conventions to guide the user. Only a few such conventions exist today for the computer screen. Now, keep in mind, this was 20 years ago. Obviously, conventions have... Um, advanced quite a bit in two decades, but uh, back in 2000, I mean, the web was only invented in like 93, 94. We all got online in like 95, 96. We were kind of making this up as we went along. Um, anyway, Bob continues. Moreover, when the computer industry borrows too heavily from the print world, it fails because many conventions require specific qualities of the physical page. Um, I find that interesting too, the relationship between digital pages and physical pages. I read a lot on a Kindle, and a Kindle has the concept of a page, right? Turning pages. Well, that really doesn't even make sense anymore, the idea of a page. Um, the concept of a, of a self-contained page is really diminishing. That's why PDFs seem weirder and weirder every day. Um, if something is a PDF, it's, it's often not really meant to be printed. Um, the idea is you're going to read it online anyway. So why is divided up into pages? I think maybe it's just because a constant continuous stroll, scroll is really distracting. Maybe just switch page to page to compartmentalize our scrolls. I'm sorry, I'm way off track now, but I always find that interesting. On the other hand, whenever the computer industry disregards convention and invents a new language of format, it also fails because people simply don't understand it. Wired Magazine, for example, features a great innovative layout and design, but it defies so many conventions that for some people it's just plain hard to read. I find that interesting, too, because I do remember Wired back around 2000. They were very, very groundbreaking. They were one of the first large websites to abandon table-based layouts. I remember when they completely redesigned their site based on divs and they were using like absolutely positioned divs and it just blew our minds back then that somebody was doing this because we were all doing page layouts based on HTML tables. And if that seems wild to you, well, congratulations, you never worked in the industry during that era because it, it was not great. Um, so it's funny that he says this about Wired Magazine because today, Wired is very, very conventional. It is, it is a very, very conventional website. But I do remember 20 years ago, Wired was way kind of out on the fringes. Uh, okay, I'm really getting off track in this section, but I find it really interesting. Okay, remember, we're talking about um, the relationship, the language of formatting between print and digital. So Bob continues. My generation spent its youth learning the language of print formatting. It's familiar and subconscious. My children still learn the language of print, but now it has a counterpoint. My children also learn the language of the screen, of the screen quote, on the street, as it were. 
as well as through games and on the web. The language of the screen is a pidgin language, like the pidgin English spoken on merchant marine vessels by natives of a hundred nations. It simplifies concepts, borrows from everywhere, messes with established meanings, and creates new ones at will. Like any pidgin language, the language of the screen is more fun, but far less agreed upon and stable than its parent tongues. Um, find that very interesting as well. Again, 20 years down the road, we have much more consistent things that we do on the web. Back in 2000, like I said, we were just kind of making it up as we went along and everybody was doing different things. And the technology was advancing at such a level that something that worked only kind of worked temporarily until something changed and then you had to switch how you were doing things. So um, it was like the Wild West back then. And the last paragraph of this sidebar reads, in the end, we will have an unconscious and agreed upon set of conventions for computer presentation, a real language of the screen, but we will arrive at it in fits and starts as we find techniques that work. The language of the screen will likely be common, not just to one culture, but to the whole world. I can say from grueling experience that although we have a long way to go in creating conventions, we are certainly ahead of where we were 20 years ago when I started putting words on screen. Okay, that's also very interesting. This was written 20 years ago and he's talking about 20 years before that. And I think this brings up an interesting point that a lot of people doing content management were doing content management long, long before the internet. Um, when I worked at Citibank back in the early 90s, I had a computer workstation. It was a Linux-based or a Unix-based risk processor machine and it had a big help system on it. And this help system was managed content. Even before that, when I worked on a green screen at Citibank, we had a system I remember, it was called GT Assist, and it was written in COBOL. And it was a content management system to manage help screens in like a green screen mainframe display. So that last, um, so many points in that last paragraph. First of all, Bob talks about how we'll have an unconscious and agreed upon set of conventions for computer presentation, which I think we have since he wrote this. And then also I love how he talks about the fact that he was doing content management, digital content management, and putting characters on a screen long before we had the web because that did happen. And if all you ever grew up with was the web, that may seem entirely foreign to you. But uh, again, I remember um, dealing with managed content in the forms of online help when I was working in green screens on mainframes. This next section is called Dealing with Formatting, and I love that title because it seems kind of cynical, like formatting is just a thing you got to deal with. Um, he talks about how it's hard to maintain consistent formatting without style guides. So he talks about style guides quite a bit in here. Um, but then he has a bulleted list where he talks about the problems that you can get very, very frustrated with. Uh, for the person who must work with pre-formatted content, meaning inbound content that someone's provided to you, the problems compound. People who aggregate content, for example, publishers or frontline print and online production workers, are often very frustrated for the following reasons. And here's a bulleted list. Uh, first bullet, because the person creating the content often finds it hard to apply formatting consistently, content often arrives poorly formatted. And the second bullet, in the absence of some institutional mandate, like use styles or you're fired, or we won't publish your book, content creators frequently have little immediate incentive to apply styles consistently because the benefits of doing so don't accrue to them directly. Uh, the third bullet is because style guidelines vary from group to group. If you aggregate content from any sources, it can become a tangle of conflicting information. 
and the last bullet is uh, because the way in which rendering format is encoded as a storage format varies widely from tool to tool. You often have no way to translate from one format to another. At best, you can translate only approximately and then massage the results. Each tool, for example, offers its own way to represent tables. You often find no way to represent the table attributes possible in one tool in the storage format that another tool uses. And then he finishes this section by talking about how like we would this is the nirvana we want to get to, which is the separation of content from presentation. And again, 20 years ago, it was kind of based around XML. Uh, Bob writes, for the content manager who must ensure that the same content can appear in various publications, each with its own storage and rendering format conventions, the problems are severe. Very few storage formats really enable you to separate formatting from content. XML and its parent SGML are among the few that do offer this type of separation. The manager faces the difficult choice of either converting all her content into a format such as XML or storing it in a storage format where rendering format and content are inseparable, such as HTML. If the manager chooses to convert to XML, she incurs a big upfront conversion cost. She also has an ongoing cost to reconvert it back to standard print and electronic storage formats for each publication. If she chooses to use a format such as HTML, producing web publications is easy, but other formats may require extensive manual effort because of poor convertibility between text formats. I think that we've largely moved beyond this. I think in the average CMS now, we're not really storing things in serialized formats. We're kind of breaking them apart into key value pairs and labeled data. Um, but this chapter does speak to really the dominance of XML back then. You know, uh, as a serialization format, clearly JSON has kind of won that battle. Um, but JSON is like 2003, 2004, um, 20 years ago, we were trying to convert everything to XML. We thought everything was going to go into XML. Um, what's interesting in this section, he has another sidebar, which I'm not going to read. And the reason why I'm not going to read is because it's business fiction and I'm not an audiobook um, um, narrator and I could not do justice to business fiction. But he has this interesting um, just fictional segment of an author um, trying to create a bulleted list in Word and getting very annoyed because the author realizes, well, I should create styles and everything. And this is an example of um, the second bullet here where he says content creators frequently have little immediate incentive to apply styles consistently because the benefits of doing so don't accrue to them directly. And this is this kind of example of this uh, business fiction here of this author um, trying to do formatting right and get very, very frustrated. But it is worth mentioning because I, I've said this before. Um, Bob wrote one of my favorite books of all time about technology called Laughing at the CIO. And it is a book of business fiction. And Bob writes very, very good business fiction. So I would encourage you to look that up. So the last section before the summary is an interesting one. It's called categorizing formatting. And what Dob does is break down the different types of formatting. And I'm not going to read everything here because it's pretty long. It's basically three bulleted lists, which I'll explain here in a second. And I'll read kind of the first sentence of each bullet. But what Bob does is something that I don't know that I've really seen anybody um, articulate before is he breaks down uh, the formatting of content into different categories. And the three categories, I'll tell you in advance, are formatting for effect, formatting by method, and formatting by scope. And then for each one, he gives some examples. So let's start with formatting for effect, which Bob describes as an author may format text to achieve an emotional or psychological effect. And the first example in the bulleted list is emphasis or importance. Size, position, and color all direct your eye. They tell your mind about the relative importance of the text to which they are applied. 
So the idea there is that um, we would format something in red or in italics or something to, um, to draw the eye. Uh, the second bullet in the formatting for effect section is parsability. And when he means parsability, he doesn't mean computer parsing. He means human eye parsing. Uh, you can take in only so much information in one eyeful. Well-used formatting breaks a mass of unparsable information into eye-sized chunks. Um, and then he goes on to kind of talk about white space. And it's funny because on LinkedIn, I just made a comment about how we perceive a body of text visually. And if you have a wall of text, it's just kind of very boxy. Whereas if you add some bullets and some images and headings, it kind of breaks that text up and makes it much more parsable to the eye. And the metaphor I used is that when you have a big wall of text, it's like trying to pick something up that has no handles. You just don't feel like you can get a grip on it. Where if you break your text up with like bullets and images and headings, it's like you're giving it handles and somebody looks at it and thinks, well, I can, I can lift that. I can parse that very easily. So the third item in formatting for effect is interest. Authors often use formatting to break up the boredom of a flat presentation. The eye and brain respond to variation. By breaking up the otherwise smooth flow of text with various styles, you entice the reader to continue. And the fourth bullet is cultural norms. Compare the formatting you see in the Wall Street Journal and the USA Today, two popular U.S. newspapers. The styling and the layout of the Wall Street Journal reeks of formality, institutionalism, and stability. The styling and layout of USA Today exudes a casual, friendly, easily accessible air. In both cases, the formatting does far more than draw your eye or generate interest. It links the publication to a cultural context. So that was the first category, which was formatting for effect. We format for effect for emphasis or importance, for parsability, for interest, and for cultural norms. The second category of formatting that he talks about is formatting by method. Um, an author may format a range of I'm sorry, the author may employ a range of formatting methods that can be neatly grouped by the following types of visual effects, and he lists three of them. The first one is typographic effects. These effects apply to the qualities and look of text. Font face, font size, kerning, text color, and effects such as underlining, bold, and italics are all examples of typographic effects. On the second bullet is layout effects. These effects apply to the positioning of content areas. Margins, columns, tables, wrapping, and indentation are all examples of layout effects. And the third is background effects. These effects happen behind and around the content. Cell colors and images, background colors and images, watermarks and reverse effects are all examples of background effects. So that was the second category, formatting by method. And the three methods he listed were typographic, layout, and background. And then the last category is formatting by scope. And this is the longest one, both in number of bullets and length of them. I'm going to summarize considerably here. But he writes, typically an author may apply forming at a range of levels from granular to gross as follows. And he starts at the smallest level, which is character formatting. This type of formatting applies to one or more text characters. So uh, if changing between one character and the next in a particular sentence makes sense, such as making one or more words bold, you can count it as character formatting. The second one is paragraph formatting, so we're moving up a level from the character to a formatting or to a paragraph. This formatting applies to blocks of text that paragraph breaks separate. Many of the layout effects, such as indents and line spacing, belong in this category. Unlike character formatting, paragraph formatting plays a major role in structuring and managing content. Okay, so that was the second one from character to paragraph. Now we're going up to page, and I find this interesting because we're kind of back to talking about the concept of a page. Um, this type of formatting unifies a set of text and media blocks into a coherent presentation. As the name implies, it applies to a single printed or online page. Effects such as margins, columns, and backgrounds are what you commonly apply at this page level in HTML. 
And so we've gone character, paragraph, page, and now we're moving up to sub-publication formatting. This formatting applies across pages to an entire section of a publication. So that would be a chapter, for instance. And then the next level up is publication formatting. This type of formatting spans all characters, paragraphs, and pages in the publication. In most authoring environments, you can select an entire publication to make the text bold, but doing so is a truly vile thing to do from the standpoint of format or structure management. Um, so that's publication. And then there's even one level above that, which he calls supra-publication formatting. This formatting applies across publications. Just as you share sub-publication formatting to get publication-level formatting, you share publication-level formatting among publications to extend the same standards. So that would be if you had a book in a series or a, um, a magazine issue in a series of magazine issues. So uh, formatting by scope, he said, as uh, character, paragraph, page, sub-publication, publication formatting and then supra-publication formatting. So those were the different uh, categories of formatting. Formatting for effect, formatting by method, and formatting by scope. And so we come to the summary of this chapter. Bob writes, as people read, they tend to take formatting for granted. Words are bold-faced or centered, text lies in columns or tables, and readers barely take notice. For the content manager, however, format warrants great attention for the following reasons. Uh, there's four bullets in this list. The system that she works with must offer the capability to accept the storage formats that she submits. That's really Bob coming back to storage formats, what he mentioned earlier, and that's all he ever says about it. Uh, the second bullet, if she applies rendering formatting consistently to the text she receives, cleaning it up and separating the format from the content can require additional and unnecessary manual labor. The third bullet, she must recognize, analyze, and synthesize the wide variety of formatting that she receives into a single coherent system. Whether it applies to a single character or to a whole family of publications, all formatting must fit into a single system of emphasis, interest, and structure. The last bullet, formatting represents implicit or explicit understandings of visual meaning. And he concludes the chapter by saying formatting is the first basic quality of content that you must account for. In the next chapter, I detail the second basic quality, which is structure. And that uh, last section speaks volumes to me because when I read the title of this chapter, Content Has Format, I thought he was talking about structure. But chapter three in the next episode is uh, Content Has Structure. So I thought this was a good chapter. It was an interesting way of looking at this. Um, I like the idea that uh, he said viewers can't separate really the content from the presentation. They can't separate the formatting for the content. That's really our job as content managers. They view the entire thing as a coherent whole. So that was the shortest chapter in the book. That was a mere seven pages. Uh, the next chapter, we'll talk about content having structure. So until next time, thanks for joining.